The following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohn, powered by ELA K25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, the magic of technology. I can see you and Keith from your remote locations. You're not hanging out with me in studio. What's going on, man? Uh, well, first of all, I got to say, what was, what's with the double disclaimer? We didn't just get one disclaimer before our show started. There were two disclaimers. Apparently what did you do? Apparently, they're very concerned about what you're going to say on the air. <laughs> Maybe it's because there's two Giants fans on this broadcast right now. <laughs> yeah, they knew what we were going with, and they decided yeah. that they would take it easy. Uh, two Giants fans, Keith Pompey, there on the air with us. Welcome back from Toronto, sir. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to be home. I'm sure. I'm sure you're happy to be home and not have to worry about a game seven tomorrow night. We'll we'll get right into it before we get to your pit stuff and football later, because we got to get to that. We'll talk basketball with you. Uh, everyone seemed to step up last night. Last time I asked, we, we had you on. It was right after Embiid kind of shushed up the arena there with his three point shot. What was it like to shut up an arena of 18,000 people again last night for this team? It was weird because, to be honest with you, once the fourth quarter has happened, I stopped paying attention as intently as I should. I start worrying about meeting deadlines. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was you know, it, it was it was it was uh, to me, it looked like they gave maximum effort. And when you look at it, there was two games that they did that: the season opener. I mean, not the season opener, the series opener, and then this one. Other than that, it just seems like they did enough to get by in two games. And then they lost the other two, but um, yeah, I mean, it was. I guess it was. It was. It was good. It was good theater. People booing Embiid and Embiid doing the airplane. I mean, it was. Uh, it was good theater. <laughs> what do you do at this point with a team that didn't seem to be engaged for most of the series? They still won. Are they going to be able to turn it on? And especially somebody like James Harden, is he going to be able to be engaged if it has to go to seven? that they're going to be engaged every game? I think they're going to have to. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's one of those questions that uh, it's hard to answer right now when you when you talk to James. It's just because of, you know, his um, being new to the team, so to speak, and you got to get a sense of him. But I, I feel like if they don't, then all of a sudden, you know, they're going to um, – they could get embarrassed. And And, and let's face it. Like right now, like this is the second round. This is where they go to die. So, you know, it, it's going to be a lot of storylines about James, about Doc, about Joel, if they don't get it done. So you would hope that he's going to be more engaged and, and you know, and, and, and figure things out for the Sixers. The one guy that you see, doesn't seem like you have to push to be engaged is what the youngest guy in Tyrese Maxey. He seems to provide like this electricity. I mean, I was talking to people yesterday who are not basketball fans who absolutely love him because of his energy and his charisma. Is 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 that personality and that youth, the youthful exuberance, is that something that is catching on with the rest of the team? I think it is. I mean, there was a, I give you a prime example, Joel Embiid, is not a morning person. He doesn't like shoot around to a point where he doesn't want to, he doesn't talk to people. But Tyrese comes in so bubbly all the time to whereas 
Now he's speaking to people because of Tyrese. So that's a prime example of it. You know what I mean? Of a personality being infectious and, um, you know, other guys on the teammates, uh, you know, following suit. So, yeah, I mean, he is. He, I mean, he's a, a great personality, a great person. He does a lot. And, uh, you know, he's hard to not like this kid. Well, you you know I've been looking out and liking him forever. Let's talk Harden for a little bit. He looked better last night than he has in much of the series. Hit a few step-back threes. For me, it wasn't so much about the shooting as it was his aggressiveness, getting everybody else involved. Um, what is his ability to balance the old James Harden that would just chuck it and dribble and, and everything with this James Harden that we saw last night? that was more distributing the ball and then when getting the opportunity knocking it down? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, that's a great question, but it also has a lot to do with who you play with, who you play with as well, right? And, and I feel like when the fact that he has Joel Embiid on his team, you know, it, it, the old James Harden is not really going to work because you got to get the big man the ball. You also have, like, Tyrese Maxey and, 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 and Tobias, so you can argue that his roster now, starting lineup teammates are better. Now, the thing is, I agree with you. Last night, he did look good. But to me, he looked good because if you notice, his four, his first four shot attempts were all drives to the basket. And then he did the step back later. You know, typically, the game starts and he's just doing a step back. What? And that doesn't work out to me. It's like you know? in football when they try and run a play action pass, but they don't actually run the ball. If you're not going to, if they're not going to buy the fake, then you're not going to get the separation to make the shot. So I like when he starts off the game being more aggressive. I could deal without him throwing up his hands every time he doesn't get a call. But you know, I imagine we'd like that better in last year's NBA because he would have probably gotten a lot more calls, and other coaches would have complained about that even more. But what do you think about? the role that Tobias Harris found with him in this series? Because it seems like for the first time since Harden's gotten here, Tobias Harris found a comfort level both on offense and defense. Oh, I like it a lot. And I and I think it really fits Tobias to a T. And what I mean by that is, you know, you look at Tobias and there's no longer the pressure saying, okay, Tobias, we need you to score 20-plus points a game. We need you to do this. When you look at it, you look at his stats. I mean, he's playing better defense, but he's grabbing rebounds. He's doing all types of stuff. And when he gets out and and in space, they 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 try to give him the ball, and 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 he's left alone for these corner threes, and he's burying it. So you know, we always said when we look at Tobias, the question was, is he a, a number one option? Is he a number two option? Right? We always ask that. Now you look at him, you see him as a number three and a number four option, and he's excelling at that big time. And so I think that, you know, if anyone is having a great series um, uh, being, um, in, in regards to being consistent, he's he's been the most consistent of any of them. So, you know, to me, he was the MVP of the first round. Is he going to have to up his game even more with the next round? I mean, you have the heat coming and the Heat have two really good guards. So you're going to have a problem. Harden's not going to have his way. Maxie's not going to have his way. They're going to double up on Joel. Does that mean that Tobias has to up his game even further for them to get? Because the other, cause my second question to that is, once those guys go off the court, 
my bigger concern is the Heat have a much better bench than the Sixers do. You're allowed to have a they bench do. in basketball? Yes. They do. They do. But but here's the thing. Like my, my thing is I think, you know, right about now, and, and that is a great question too. Well, what's up? This great question Friday. But um <laughs> but 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 here, here here's your check the thing. will be in the mail. <laughs> here's the thing, you know. You don't want, I think sometimes you don't want Tobias doing too much. Like, I feel like if he gets hot, you know, you got to ride him. But for the most part, I feel like, you know, he's the beneficiary of other guys drawing a lot of attention towards him. So now if you're saying, does he need to do more? Meaning, like, if he gets these open looks, yeah, like knock down shots, do all that other stuff. But as far as like, I feel like, you're saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna run through him. We're gonna do all this. We're gonna do that. I think that may take away from some of his effectiveness because when you look at it, you know, right now the focal point is Joel, James, Tyrese, then Tobias. You know what I mean? As far as like defensive schemes, so you know, once people start saying, oh well, we gotta uh, defend Tobias, then maybe he could get shut down a little bit. So. I mean, I think that a lot of his stuff is predicated off of what they do, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like they help him out, but I don't know if, I mean, that's a great question, but I don't know if it, with him doing so much, if that's going to really bode well for the 76ers. That's telling me that other guys are getting shut down. Did the Sixers winning last night uh, take some of the pressure out of Doc? The press conference the other day with you guys uh, he, you're shaking your head. No, I should just stop there. Yeah, he, he has a really bad twitch right here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, it it, it just ahead. seems like he um did not like being questioned about his history of blowing series. He questioned the pattern. He questioned the players. He questioned a lot of things that he did not believe contributed to said pattern. Um, <laughs> your thoughts on where Doc is right now? <laughs> You know, I, 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 it's not because you know what? Here's the thing. Like it, now, again, this was a four-five matchup, so this is probably the closest of every first-round matchup. To me, the playoffs don't, don't really start until the second round. I mean, that's when you know the first round is like you get like these high seeds going against these other seeds. Some seeds are just happy to be there. A team like Toronto, a young team, although I just thought they could give smoke but they were a young team. So just because the Sixers won, that doesn't, you know, take any pressure off of Doc at all because, you know, Doc Rivers was hired to come here um, to help win the championship, at least get to a championship. And last I checked is that Sixers have only um, been been out of uh, the first round, been out of the second round, um, and two of their last, I mean, one, uh, excuse me, one out of their last 11 tries. So Doc has to do that. The Sixers have to do that. If not, you look at it and you're going to say to yourself, okay, you know, Doc Rivers is making X amount of money, $8 million. You know, well, he's, he didn't get us any further than Brett Brown. So I feel like, no, that, yes, it's nice that they won that series. But as the four seed with the home court advantage, they was expected to win that series. They were favored to win that series. Well, and it doesn't get any easier. They're not favored to win this series. 
<clears throat> whatever people think about that. And it would be the first time in 21 seasons they would make the conference finals if they could win. Besides Eric Spolstra, I listened to your Locked On Sixers podcast. Others should. You had a stat that the five guys averaging in double figures for the Heat, none of them are named Kyle Lowry. Talk about the depth of this team that Jeff mentioned because we don't have it with the Sixers. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's crazy, right? You have five guys averaging in double figures, and then the sixth guy is uh, P.J. Tucker averaging 9.6. This is in the playoffs. Now, again, some people might say, but that was the Atlanta Hawks. But you look at the type of balance. You look at how this team was able to close out and be successful without two starters, without two starters. And then you have Kyle Lowry leading leading them in blocks and assists. So, you know, that's going to be a problem because, you know, when you look at this matchup compared to the other one, Toronto was very forward heavy. Like they had a bunch of power forwards who they played on the floor together in eight like different positions. They just say, hey, look, we're going to deal with it. Well, this team, they're kind of guard heavy. I mean, now Victor Oladipo is playing. He's doing certain things. You know, they they, they have uh, the other guys. I mean, they, and, and not are they not just guard heavy. They're long, too. So, you know, I, I think that this is the type of game where, you know, George Niang, is he going to be able to defend these guys? Probably not. So then you bring Furkan in, and can Furkan defend these guys? So Matisse has been playing in the slump since the COVID situation. So it's going to be tough for the 76ers when you think of the depth that this team has. Is Matisse lost now? Uh, For the rest of this series and the rest of this season, is he lost? Because I got to tell you, the last home game that he was at, he looked like he had no confidence. You could literally see it in his face when he was on the court. Yeah, I don't know if he's lost completely yet. I think that a lot of it, and and that's, you know, I can see where you're coming from because he did look kind of like, you know, like he he looked, he he just looked like he, he, I don't know, he just was in a bad state. And the fans kind of turned on him. I mean, he was always kind of a, he was kind of a fan favorite and he's, he is a nice guy, but he just like people in my section, there were people just screaming, get him out of the game. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. I think that reality hit him because, you know, you go, you, you don't take the vaccine and then you go, the team goes to Toronto for a day. And then they, I mean, like three days or two days, they go there the day before the game, they go to the game and they're back that night, right? You're seeing the guys on the third day. When he, they were, when he was away from the team for five days, and I know they have somebody back there working them out and doing this and that. I just feel like that set him back a lot. It did. Like, as far as, you know, you guys are in the middle of a series and you're not there for five days. You can't do anything with your teammates for five days. So then you throw him into this game. He was just out of sync. Like, you know, he, it was, it was just bad. Now the test is going to be, what is he going to look like these first two games in Miami, especially the second one? where he has certain days to be able to, you know, warm up and, and, and practice with his teammates, have dinner with him, do things. But he just looked like, to me, he looked like uh, the transfer student in the fourth grade who doesn't know anyone. And you're like kind of like trying to fill yourself, but you're way behind because your parents transfer you in the middle of the school. Year. You know, 
So he just looked behind. Let's talk Joel Embiid's health. Obviously, he got an MRI. Potentially, he'll need something after the playoffs end. He's going to play in pain. Game five, whether he was tired or hurt, it was a different Embiid than game six, where he looked more like himself with his aggressiveness. What did you see out of him, and how do you think that his injury is going to impact him going forward playing through this? You know, he, he looked like to me, this is something that was key to me, like when he came out and warmed up, right? And last time he warmed up in, in Toronto, he was making every shot. But he was, he was like purposely not using the right hand. You know what I mean? Avoiding all types of contact. He took a basketball and he kept pounding it, boom, 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 boom. He did that like maybe 10 times, right? And I'm like, okay. And he looked like a guy who played through it this time. You know what I mean? And it didn't bother him. If he can keep that up, I think he'll, he'll you know, he'll, he'll be fine. But it's just a matter of him continue to keep it up. It also lets you know that he wasn't really focusing on it either in that game. Now, the thing is, they, they, this, this is a tricky thing because, yeah, you can go into a game with that mindset. But then if people start purposely swiping at it, you know, to get you out, how are you going to deal with that afterwards? You know what I mean? Because I got a sense that that could happen <laughs> happen this series with, you know, with that team. With Pat Riley at the helm of that organization, yeah. it's very likely that he's walked into the locker room telling them to hack away at his hand. Yeah. Do you believe that two games ago, the game five, that, Embiid's problem was more about the injury or more about that he's just gassed during certain games because he has no help. He B-ball Paul is not coming in there for a five, six, seven-minute stretch. He's in there for two minutes and Embiid's back in the game. I had it just that it was more mental to do with the injury. Um, and now, get it, don't get it wrong. I think he was gassed. Now, I think in game, game five, Game five, I think he was gassed that when everybody's like he's out of shape. Nah, y'all, <laughs> his minutes like is this he's coming in sooner than he normally does, right? So I think yeah that impacted, but I do think that at least like game four it was all about the hand, right? He was like passive with it. So part of game five it was the hand, but then. When 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 B ball Paul came in and the team went on a run, yeah, I, I I see that in the fourth. But I still think that he was a little nervous about his hand too. But um, but it, it's more to do with the hand, if you ask me. All right. Well, n- now we need to. We've gotten your your comments on basketball. Now we're going to get to your expertise, which is football. The Steelers, Super Bowl contenders now that Pickett's uh, their quarterback. Not any more than him, don't they? That's some pressure on your on your guy's boy there to follow up Roethlisberger in that town where he's already played. It's a tough spot to step with, into. The quarterback with the tiniest hands. Two gloves. At least they won't boo him. At least he won't get booed. <laughs> well, at least he, I hope he doesn't. Oh, you get you know that if he, they start losing, they'll boo him. Come on. Yeah, they're a little different there, though. I mean, they may if he if he if he struggles mightily, but they're a little different. Jeff yeah, asked, they though, they don't boo; they wave their terrible towels. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter. Like, Jeff asked, un, un, unlike here, when you know now the Eagles must be the, the 
the favorite now that they've gotten AJ Brown. Favorite for right? what? Super Bowl. No, I think no. This had on. to put them over the top, right? Stop it. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but I know okay, so Keith, you think Keith that comments? The, you think that the AJ Brown trade would you think he's over the hill at this point, it seems. Uh, Jeff thought I was cyber stalking you. I was more enjoying your trolling of Eagles fans as uh, the Giants. It seemed like you really liked the Giants picks. Jeff isn't sold on Thibodeau totally. Uh, it seemed like you weren't in on the Eagles picks. Was that my correct read? I didn't see any crying Jordan memes or anything, but that was the take I got from the comments back and forth with your Dallas friends. See, here's my thing with the uh, the Brown thing. Like a couple years ago, Eagles fans would would criticize him if he was on their team because of the money he wanted and he wanted out. And I remember when, what was the guy, uh, Julio Jones goes there, right? Then all of a sudden this guy is supposed to be the second receiver, right? And he's, and he's willing to give Julio Jones his jersey, right? And he's like, I'm just going to give it up. And Julio Jones is like, no, I guess, whatever. But my thing is, so now all of a sudden he comes here and it's like all the hype. You know what I mean? Now, maybe it may work out. But if he's in Tennessee, he's having a great year, and they want to bring in somebody else to be the number one, and they want you to give up give up the jersey. And another thing is Tennessee didn't want to pay him that, that money. That's what I thought so, it was. So, they didn't want to pay so him They didn't want to pay money. him. So then the Eagles pay him. Now, that big offensive lineman is huge. He's good, but he wasn't the best defense. I mean, all defensive, defensive lineman. lineman. Yeah, he wasn't the best defensive lineman that they had. I like Thibodeau. Now, who knows? He he, he could be the next Mike Mamula, right? All I know, and oh, he was in the pack twelve. Well. No. I'm just I'm I'm just saying, you know, like you know, he he fits the bill. But when you think of Giants football of the years, over the years, it was always a great pass rusher. I didn't see a great pass rusher on that defense. And the offensive lineman is a good offensive lineman, so I, I kind of think is a is a start in the right direction. I thought that you was know? your best pick, the offensive lineman. I mean, that's what you need. That's you and Jeff yeah. keep telling me until Daniel Jones can stay upright uh, that you're not going to do much of anything there. I have concerns about the ability for Davis to keep his weight down uh, and and be a, a three down player. It does seem, though, and the Eagles haven't come out openly and said it, it seems like they're moving more to like a 3-4 style defense, and he's like a nose tackle in the middle that's just going to eat up space. And, I I mean, they haven't officially said it, but you look at Hassan Reddick, sort of can play like an outside linebacker slash undersized down defensive end. I just I don't know if that's where they're moving. They need to get somebody in the way of a cornerback to cover some of these receivers that are out there because Darius Slay is just one player. Uh, but look, I was not totally disappointed in the draft last night as an Eagles fan. And I was happy. The Eagles, the Eagles now need to get to the quarterback on one Mississippi because I'm two Mississippi. But that's the thing with Davis is, okay, so you get this guy who can plug up the middle. Well, what Mm -hmm. about, you know, when you play the bills, Josh Allen, he gets the ball out in like two and a half seconds or Aaron Rodgers, two and a half seconds. It doesn't matter that push up front that you're getting the balls out. So unless you get a cornerback who can actually cover, none of this will matter. Now, they do have some offensive weapons. The first thing I got from Keith, by the way, is uh, from Jeff is about tampering because Jalen Hurts and uh, uh, A.J. Brown were out playing football together because they've known each other for a while. So that was my first text that I got from Jeff after the draft pick, Keith. That was his reaction. 
Yeah, but can can Jalen? I mean, I'm wondering if, if if how that how that parent's going to be though. So I mean, I mean, so so AJ Brown's from Houston. Yes, yeah, so they've known each other. Apparently, um, age uh, Jalen Hurts was at AJ Brown's draft party. That's why uh, they were throwing football. They were at like one of the daughters' parties together. So they're apparently oh. friendly outside of football, but they haven't actually played on the same team. I just kind of like the idea that you have weapons where you've got more possession receiver in A.J. Brown, and now you've got Devontae Smith, who can't be doubled, can take the top off and try and do that, and then you've got Goddard and Miles Sanders. Though I think the thing to watch is I think this team's going to like Kenny Gainwell um, more than they are Miles Sanders going did into the you, season. Did you just call A.J. Brown a possession receiver? For this team, he's more of a possession receiver wow. than anybody so this, they've this had. This is your $100 million version of Alshon Jeffrey? He's had 100 receptions in three seasons, I believe. I mean, that's, but, you know, you're going to get targets. And in this offense, they run of like a lot of five-yard routes. He's going to get a lot of touches, whether he catches them. Last year, he had a lot of drops, and he had some mental health challenges and didn't have a great year last year. Clearly, Tennessee didn't buy in to him to give him that money. We'll see if the Eagles gambles right. Now, here's my question, though. So we're talking about Smith, right? He's like a number one receiver, right? A mm-hmm. great receiver right. so far. So Better than Kadarius Tony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so last year, bitter, this bitter guy is, face. is wide open. He's wide open, and they don't try to get him the ball. Now they're bringing in another dude that the quarterback is really friendly with. So it's kind of like, okay, so you got the Heisman Trophy winner. Look, and now it's like, I don't know that the, like, I don't know. I, that I don't the, understand it. I, 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 maybe I don't understand it, man. Look, I just don't. I'm, there's a reason I talk sports on the radio and don't play them, other than the fact that I'm 5'6. I just don't have that skill. But you wouldn't it, be it, the possession receiver. No, the I, w- I wouldn't be. I wouldn't qualify for Waterboy. We've been through this. But it didn't look like Jalen Hurts looked at the whole field last year. So I don't know that he ever saw how open Devontae Smith was. And Jalen Hurts got developed that as a quarterback. We'll see whether he is. I think that Howie's hedging his bets because you notice of all the moves he made, he made eleven trades in the draft. None of them were to get rid of those two first round picks next year where it's supposedly a good quarterback draft that he can make moves to get up if he needs to do something if Jalen Hurts isn't his guy. So I think how he's showing you that he doesn't have total faith in him, but he's trying to give him weapons to go out there and get it done. All right, so go buy your Bryce Young Eagles jersey now. we got to get to a commercial shortly. So, Keith, before you go, since last time I let you off the hook with a prediction, and you gave one anyway, now I'm going to ask you for a prediction. This is a tough one, maybe, because I don't know who's playing for Miami. (laughs) I mean, with Jimmy Butler. Come on. Man, I, no. Jason hedges his bets. But that's a good, but that's a good question. I, I, I Who is Miami, playing? I say Miami and seven. Do you think that we're going to see Butler and and Kyle Lowry play, or do we are, do we think we're going to miss games in this series? I think Kyle Lowry, like, you know, it's a hamstring. I don't ex- – unless – I mean, I don't know how long he's been out, but I wouldn't expect him to be back by game one. I mean, if they say Jimmy's a wrestling, then maybe Jimmy, but – you know, I, I don't know, like, how long Kyle's going to be around. Because, I mean, I never had a messed up hammy, but but I, I, would, I would think that you sure as heck don't want to rush that back. Look at Danny Green. They rushed his back. And he was he went, he went back on the men this year. Well, look, Keith, we look forward to following your coverage. Safe travels to Miami. Uh, go get some fun in the sun. You know, do a little work there, too. 
follow everything at Pompeii on Sixers. <laughs> Read you in the Inquirer. Always appreciate the time. Take care, man. All right. Thank you. Deuces. Go Giants, baby. Go Giants. You had to. You had to. You didn't even close on the pit. You went go Giants today. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jeff. So we got Keith's take on it. Let's uh, any final thoughts before we hit the break and we we talk some blue claws baseball. What, what do you What do you want for the Eagles to do with the beginning round two? Uh, cornerback. I need a cornerback. I wouldn't mind a linebacker and a defensive lineman, an outside rusher. No Those Malik the, Willis. Uh no, no. Right. I I don't I don't need to be a quarterback factory. I'm all good. All right, Jeff, let's hit the break. When we come back, we've got baseball talk. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Keith Werman was named the 15th manager in Blue Claws history, leading them in 2022. This is their second season as the Phillies high A affiliate. Um, Look, I haven't had a coach on who's been 10 years younger than me yet. So I have to tell you the (laughs) research was interesting. Uh, What's it been like for you, a man from Virginia, to come back to the East Coast and get to be here with the Blue Claws? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's awesome. It's really nice. Obviously my wife and I, we both have family out here along the East coast and, um, you know, had an opportunity to, to get back over here in the Phillies organization and, and experience some new things on, on, on my side of things, but, you know, really, really excited for, for being out here. Love the seasons, love the, the climate change, you know, it's it started out a little bit chilly here to, to begin the season, but, uh, definitely enjoying it. You are going to coach or well, you're coaching in a, in a kind of a special place for us. It's, it's down by the shore, uh, you know, for people that are from Philadelphia, New Jersey area, the shore is kind of a special place. What's it like to kind of coach by the shore and what's it been like early on for like the players? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a new experience for me. I've always driven through the Jersey area. Uh, my brother lives in Philly. And um, so, you know, it's, it's still a little bit of a new environment for me. Definitely settling in. Uh, the, the fans have been great. I know it's been real chilly the first couple of games, but uh, as we've gotten warmer weather, the fan base is, has grown a little bit, and it's it's a really fun environment. I think the players love the ballpark, uh, and they they love the environment that the the fans produce for us. So it's it's been a great start so far. You're a local East Coast guy in terms of the Virginia area who played baseball, and it seems like there were lots of fun stories of you growing up playing ball. Did you really switch hit every at bat? <laughs> Uh, in little league when I was little, yes. Yeah. Regardless of the pitcher, uh, just for the fun of it, uh, we, you know, just had tried to have fun as much fun as possible. And, and, uh, it was a good challenge too. just alternate left, right. Every, every at bat regardless. And, and yeah, but it, it wasn't enough for you to, to switch hit. You decided that at some point you needed to switch pitch too. like, who, <laughs> how do you come up with the idea as a kid that I'm, you know, what, I'm going to throw from both sides of the plate. And how do you have a parent or parents that say, pick an arm. Yeah, you know, when when I started out really little, obviously my, my brother is about seven years older than me, and he talk about passionate about the game of baseball and loves it and, and live and die by it and work work harder than anybody. You know, he was always active with baseball, and I was in diapers running around starting to throw the ball with my left hand, and, uh, you know, them looking out for me and my future, the ability to play every position, 
you need, you don't need to, but uh, realistically, you should be throwing right-handed. So uh, they they kind of developed me into a right-hander, and we played wiffle ball. We had a batting cage in the backyard. We used to throw in the cul-de-sac, and it just became one of those things that hey, let's give it a shot and see what you got. You know, why not try it? And uh, it came out pretty natural, and we just took it off from there. Did you get the special glove, or did you have to have two gloves? I actually did. Uh, you know, once we started realizing what I could do uh, when it came to both hands, um, my dad called me up in our little – we had a little office, a little computer, and and uh, traced my hands on a piece of paper, sent it to a company, and they sent us a glove, a little six-finger glove, like a little trapeze glove. It's, it's, it was pretty cool. So I'd like to have your dad coach you. Uh, Jeff Jeff doesn't ask this question, but he, he coached his son in, in the Little Leagues. What was that like for you to have that experience with the family? Oh, man, I was, I was very lucky. Um, it's, it was a pretty, pretty special bond, obviously, with your dad being out there every day with you. And, and he, he obviously wants the best for you. And um, I was fortunate. I'm, I'm not, a, not a, a big guy by any means. And uh, a lot of times a little guy gets stuck in a, into a small, you know, out in left field or just second base. And, and my dad tried to create an environment for all of the players to experience as much as possible. Everybody pitched. Everybody played all the positions for the most part. And, um, you know, we just had a blast doing it and he, he made the game fun. I think that was unique about it. And, and obviously for him and now myself with two little kids, you know, I, I love the opportunity to be there for him every single day as much as possible. And I think that's just a special bond you have with the dad and, and, and your son. And you get that chance to do that. It's pretty cool. You know, it seems like you're somebody who just likes to have fun around the game. Uh, you get to experience the College World Series in 2009 and 2011, playing for your home state team with Virginia under a coach who was a mentor. Tell us about what that experience was like out in Omaha. Oh, man. I mean, you talk about memories that will last forever and, and a group of guys that you'll, you'll always be connected with. And um, it, it was a challenge for sure. You know, obviously, everybody strives to get there. There's a ton of really great teams out there and the opportunity to be one of the final eight to get there. Uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable. It says a lot about our, our, the, the program at Virginia and the players that we had and, and, you know, our, our fight to, to have some, some success. And um, it was a blast. It was really, really, really fun. Uh, you work really hard. It was tough. It wasn't easy. Um, you, you're exhausted after every game, but um, the experience, just the fans, the stadium, just the overall, the overall experience of Omaha is just, you can't take that away from anybody. Yeah. People don't, you know, we, we talk about the final four in basketball so often in the college championship with, with football. What, what is it like to be part of that for Omaha and what's the experience? Like, I know it's a lot of fun, but what's the experience like from a player's perspective? Oh man. There's, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, you talk about distractions off the field. I mean, at our workout, you have the, uh, you know, companies, whether it's Nike or, or uh, Oakley, you know, coming to the, to your practice to basically provide uh, merchandise for you as, you know, to represent them and, um, you know, to what levels are those, you know, allowed and whatnot, but I don't know those rules, but to have those guys getting there and, and just sharing, their appreciation for what you do and, and the fan base. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty special. There's, it's pretty nonstop too. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of distractions off the field. That's for sure. Yeah. Did you ever think about now that we have name image and likeness and college players can make, can make money that how much money or, or what you could have done with the fact that you were a, a Namby Dixter's pitcher. <laughs> 
I may have made a few dollars here or there. We'll see. <laughs> He's going to have to go get name, image, and likeness as a manager for that. You know, you know, so you end up coming here from the Padres organization. But the interesting thing to me is how you got to the Padres organization. You're, you're a man who uh, spent some time over in Japan as international operations coordinator. But the culture wasn't new to you, whether you were at Virginia or with your mom. Can you explain your love with the Japanese culture and how that led you over to that part of baseball, which eventually got you to the Padres? Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate, uh, you know, growing up, my, my mother put me in a Japanese immersion program in Northern Virginia and, um, it kind of kickstarted my interest there, um, took the language in college. Um, and I just wanted an opportunity to go to Japan and experience it. And I've always, always appreciated the way that they played the game in Japan, uh, very fundamentally sound. And, um, you know, that their work ethic uh, is, is off the charts. And uh, to have that opportunity to go over there and, and build relationships with the, with some really awesome people out there that, um, you know, they're, they're just an extension of my family now. And, um, you know, they created an environment for me to, to learn and grow uh, individually and just to experience everything. And uh, to be able to tie that into going over to San Diego and, and to where I am now, I mean, I wouldn't be there without those guys. So it's, it's pretty remarkable what they can do out there. You know, you talked about fundamentals over in Japan. We've talked to Jamie Moyer. We've talked to Greg Dobbs and some other former Phillies about how important fundamentals are and, and how fundamentals have kind of gotten lost in, in Major League Baseball. You're a big fundamental guy from what we've heard, even focusing on things that we don't even hear about anymore, like the sacrifice bunt. What's that? Um, yeah, we, we, had to, we had to look that up. <laughs> I can teach you. I can teach you. <laughs> is, is that something that you've always been interested in? Is it something that you learned from your time over in Japan? Where did it come from? Yeah, you know, it's funny reverting back to my dad as a coach. Uh, one of one of the, the joys of of practice. Um, at the end of every practice, he would put a dollar bill uh, along the the third base line, and every player had a chance to to get the bunt as close to the dollar as possible. The closest to the dollar got the dollar. Um, and there would be random times where we put a batting glove out there and put money inside the batting glove. You didn't know how much money was in it. It just created a competitive environment, but the kid, all of us loved it. And his one rule was if you had, if you asked that we were going to do it, we wouldn't do it. So the whole practice, everybody's excited to do it. But if we asked, we weren't going to be able to do it. So it's just a fun, you know, fun little challenge, but um, my dad always harped on the fundamentals. Obviously you get to high school, my high school coach, Scott Rowland harped on the fundamentals. Uh, it was just ingrained in me throughout my whole life. And to get the chance to, to carry that emphasis at, at, in college at Virginia and then into pro ball. I mean, the more I see the game and even at the major league level, teams lose games more than teams win games, if that makes sense to you. And it, the more you watch the fundamentals and see how the games play when it comes to the playoffs, the teams that make the least mistakes tend to have most success. Um, so that this is kind of something that's I've always recognized as, as really valuable to the game. And I don't want to lose that value. You're talking to two people who regularly point out errors in a game. So <laughs> we, we are enjoying the talk of that. You know, you, you talk about the relationships you develop. You're in the Padres organization. You develop a relationship with Preston Mattingly, who comes over here to help reshape, reshape what the system looks like here. Can you talk about that relationship and about how he convinced you to come from the weather out west back east? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he and I worked together very closely uh, the last couple of years, uh, more on the advanced side of the game on the major league with the major league staff. Uh, and so we worked very closely together throughout the last couple of years. And, um, you know, you, you get to know the person for who they genuinely are 
and what they're passionate about. And uh, when he had the opportunity to join the Phillies and, and you know, be a part of kind of reshaping this culture, this identity of, of what we want to truly be about and, and take this organization to another level um, and to a, just a higher standard, um, you know, it's the opportunity to jump on that with him. You know, it, it was an easy conversation, honestly. Um, you know, obviously we had the relationship together and, and just to see the hunger and the passion and the sense of urgency in him to want to make these, make these things happen and have the ability to do those things. It's just, I was really excited for the chance to, to be a part of that and really impact these players and, and impact the organization to do some really special things. Yeah. I mean, and you're part of an organization and especially the team that you're now coaching in, in the blue claws that has a history of not only developing great players, but, but also winning. Um, Dusty Wathon was there, you know, a, a while back and won a couple championships there. And so yeah. how, as, as a young manager, how do you balance the idea of the competitive side of you that wants to win every game versus the idea that you're there to develop players? No question. I think that's, you know, for, for as a new manager, that's one of the biggest challenges that I've found myself with uh, literally game to game, inning to inning, whether, you know, there's certain situations, do I keep the pitcher in a little bit longer for the best interest for him? Or am I better off going to a guy in the bullpen that I feel at that moment has the best chance to get that out. And there's, there's so many challenges to that and trying to create that environment for these guys. I mean, you have to learn how to win baseball games. That's why we play the game is to win ultimately in the major leagues. That's where you, you have to win in the major leagues. That's why you play there. Uh, that's just really is a really tough dynamic in the minor leagues to, to get these guys to understand what it takes to win ball games, but also we have to, we have to also develop you to, to have success going, to, going forward to the major leagues. And as you work to develop that and figure out your own approach, balancing winning versus development, baseball decides to hand a bunch of rule changes that you can work with in the minor <laughs> leagues. So I'm going to save the shift for Jeff because that's his pet baby. I'll let him get to you next. <laughs> uh, but I'll go with the expanded pitch clock. Uh, the studies have shown it's, it's shaved about 23 minutes off the game on average. Um, how do the players react to that? And how do you as a manager kind of implement some of these changes that you yourself haven't had to deal with before. Yeah, it definitely creates a little bit extra distraction away from what they're trying to accomplish or execute on the mound, really, or even at the plate for the hitters. Um, you know, everybody has their own set routine that they like to, to do between pitches. And this is kind of reshaping a little bit of that. But um, if I'm completely honest with you, I actually, I actually have enjoyed it. Um, I have liked it. I think, when when things are going well for you as a club, you want to maintain a really good tempo, a good pace to the game, and and this pitch clock allows that to happen. Um, there's there's a lot of times where tempos can get really slow, and the defense can start dragging, and you start seeing some misplays, and and just it, it kind of builds a momentum, kind of shifts a different direction. I think it helps keep that momentum going. Um, I think there's a few adjustments, obviously they they could make. Uh, to me, it's just in between innings, just the time clock just gets a little bit condensed, and I. You know, the last thing we want is a pitcher forcing or, or speeding through their warm-up pitches just to just to p- beat a pitch clock for one pitch, you know. Um, those are all things that MLB is ironing out or minor league baseball umpires, are we're, they're ironing those things out and we'll, we'll get to a place where uh, there's some really nice flow going. But so far, so good. I mean, it has been a little bit of adjustment for the guys, but, um, you know, no, no major complaints and, and we're, we're, we seem to be doing just fine with it. Yeah, Jason mentioned my favorite thing, which is the shift. Um, how, how is 
barring the shift working or how do you deal with it? And, and, and are coaches trying to stick with it or are they looking for ways around it? Yeah, I think uh, I personally like the shift. Um, ah, I, all right, you I would like that. to see it stay. Yeah, I, I understand the, the art. So you're the argument like people should figure it out guy. You like the shift or yes. is that where it is? To me, we're playing a game and the, the rules are the players have to just stay in fair territory except for the catcher. So play wherever you want to play. If you want to play six outfielders and two infielders, go do it. Like that's the game. That's the strategy, the, the art and the, the beauty of the game. Like go do it. Like, what's stopping us from having to do that? When you start putting restrictions on some things, it, it can, it just gets interesting. And um, people like know, Jeff I, complaining is what's stopping you from doing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, at, at this level what's, what's challenging is you have really young players who don't, there's just not a lot of information about them. Um, and there's a lot of development with creating instincts for our infielders to see the game in front of you, whether it's playing with counts, playing with who's on the mound. Is the guy late on his swings? Is he early on his swings? There's a lot of like little pieces to the game within the game that are, I, I believe the infielders need to learn how to, how to do those things and to try to create an environment to do that. I think it's more about that's what that's what it's more about than it is to say, hey, play right here. Um, some teams are are trying to get as close as you can to it. Um, other teams just hey, go play, go play, and, and kind of create those instincts. All right. Well, so you may have seen, but up in the in Citizens Bank Park or with the Phillies organization, one of the gentlemen on our team, uh, and a true gentleman normally is Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber had a a meltdown with an umpire. So we had, we had to ask you, have you ever had a Schwarber moment or have you ever come? What's the closest beautiful by to the a way. Schwarber moment? His no, meltdown man. Was beautiful. I'm not, I'm not a very fiery guy. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I recognize more so at our level that, that the umpires are doing the best they can to, you know, and, and they're, they're going to miss calls. It's part of the game. Um, you know, I, I just remember I was playing rookie ball. I think I was 23. Um, and the umpire at home plate, I think, was 19 or 20. So I was already older than him. <laughs> I knew I had more baseball experience than him, you know, and uh, it was an 0-2 count. And the pitch didn't even start out in the right-handed batter's box, and it ran even further. It Like, not even close, not even close. And all I could think of doing was I just looked at him and said, hey, that, that's just not a strike. I don't know what to tell you. I just can't. Like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, did he let it go, or did he toss you? He didn't. No, he didn't toss me. I, just, <laughs> I didn't have it in my heart as a player to to. To don't worry get myself we, well we, maybe if, maybe if you spend a little time with like larry boa when you're in the organization maybe yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe he'll teach you the the art of arguing with the umpire he's a beauty he's a beauty that's yeah. for sure i've i've enjoyed him for sure and when we have umps on we make sure to ask them about throwing people out so don't think we just ask you about getting tossed we we make sure yeah, to ask yeah. umps too about their own experiences yeah Gotta we, ask we've you. had we've had a couple calls this year so far and and you know i've addressed some things with the umpires and it gets fiery for sure you know we'll, i'll get in there i'll get in there and let them know and well, some of the some of the umpires have told us that some of these arguments look like arguments but instead what they are is is a coach yelling at the umpire recommendations for restaurants. So you, <laughs> if you want to so do that, make, yeah, learn the restaurants down by the shore so you can give recommendations. Yeah, if you want to go out there and put on that show. One up, one up we interviewed got very good Italian restaurant recommendations before signaling <laughs> that it was time for him to leave Perfect. the field. So That's good to know. That's good to know. We should ask you a little bit about the players. You have some of the top names in the system 
playing on your team. I'll, I'll leave the picture for Jeff. I'll ask you about the international free agent from 2018, uh, 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 Johan Rojas, who is generating attention. And, you know, I like the quote from him. I don't like to lose. Uh, tell us about what it's like to coach him and the adjustment that he's going through right now, because it seems like there's a lot of optimism with what people are saying and you as a coach have to manage that. Yeah, he's uh you talk about a spark plug to your to your clubhouse and your lineup and and defense just all parts of the game. He's he is electric. Um and he is passionate and he does want to win. He's super competitive. Um he, he he'll come into my office, "Hey, how can we, how can we make these guys better? How can we get better as a club?" Like he's hungry for those things and and that that takes that's that says a lot about him for his character and who he is and um you know, it's it's great. He gets up to the plate. He's aggressive early. Uh, he gets on the bases. He's looking to run like he's forcing the other team to slow him down and he's he's taking over the game and uh, it's it's pretty electric, and I'm I'm really excited for him in his future. When you see his his motor, his drive, his competitiveness, are there times that you feel that you have to kind of slow it down a little bit, or do you just kind of unleash it and just say go, let those competitive juices fly? Yeah, I just hope that you know I can create an environment to let him just go play. And and sure, we're going to have teaching teaching moments throughout the game of hey, was what do you think about that play? Was that the right time to do those things? Um, Let's look at reasons maybe not to and just kind of create that dialogue uh, in the dugout or, or before or after games. And, and just, you know, I, that's that's my hope is every game I just sit in the dugout and let the kids play and just go get them. You know, if I have to step in and take over, like we're, we're, we're not doing the things that we're capable of doing. Well, some of the some of the kids that you have to play are, are some pretty good arms you have in this organization or yeah. are the ones that you get to manage, including Mick Abel. What's it been like to, to, to manage him and what do you see from him? Yeah, he's uh, he's been fun to watch. Um, obviously, still pretty young, uh, still learning, learning a lot of, you know, pitching development, um, has electric stuff, has the the body that everybody wants to see on the mound as far as presence and whatnot. And, um, you know, we're just continuing to challenge him and, and, and learn and grow with the game and, and uh, you know, try to get the best out of him every outing that he's out there. Um, I, I only see improvements as he goes and, and it's going to be fun to watch. You know, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, obviously, we talked a little bit about your coaching style with the fundamentals. Uh, one of your mentors is in the Phillies organization now, Bobby Dickerson. Can you talk about his influence on you, Brian O'Connor at UVA, and how they shaped you to the philosophy that you have with these young guys right now as you try to help them move to the next level? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it comes like we play the game to win. And obviously, like we've talked about in the minor leagues, you, you, there's a balance of development and, and winning. But, um, you know, when it comes to winning baseball games, you have to take care of the baseball. And it, it was fun to have that passion going into college. And Brian O'Connor instilled those same, uh, you know, foundational values. And to have him kind of challenge me to continue on, continue that on. Um, and then to, to cross paths with Bobby Dickerson in San Diego. And he puts his arm around me the last couple of years. And, and we talked all, every single day. And it was constant dialogue all the time. And to see a lot of overlap and see some new experiences and all the things that he's gone through, uh, through the minor leagues as, as in, in all kinds of roles. Um, it's, you know, it just, it says a lot for who he is and what he's done. And, and, uh, you know, I couldn't be more thankful to, to have those opportunities with, the, with both of those guys. Manager Keith Werman, 
the Jersey Shore Blue Claws. We appreciate the time. Can't wait to follow what you're doing with some of this talent in our system and wish you the best of luck there at the shore. Also get those food recommendations ready for the umps. I will. I'll, I'll start making a list. <laughs> and, and good and good luck down in Iron uh, Aberdeen. We're looking forward to seeing you once you get back to the Jersey Shore. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a great one. Thank you. Jeff, that was fun. He was great to talk to, but I know that he lost you at the shift. It's very disappointing that there's anybody coaching any level of baseball <laughs> that that believes the shift is a good thing. You know, fact, look, he 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 seems like a great manager. He's got a great head on his shoulders. He's going to be great for these guys, these young guys that are coming up through the system. I just don't need the shift. Okay, but let's talk about some of the other things he talked about. The pitch clock, mm-hmm. he didn't really seem to to mind too much. Um, no, you know, it was interesting that the longest period of the pitch clock is the one in between innings. And that seems to be the one that concerns him and managers, because you want to make sure that the pitchers have the opportunity to warm up. You wonder if there's another solution to it, though. Like maybe the pitcher's not sitting and now that they're not hitting, maybe they don't sit in the dugout anymore. Maybe they go sit at maybe they go sit in the bullpen. And then when there's two outs, they start their warm ups then and run it. Why can't they do that? Yeah, I mean, it, it could certainly be a solution. I actually saw a pitcher tweeting out a thread talking about how the pitch clock was was making things different, not unworkable, but it speeds things up in terms of the walk-up music and in terms of the routine, and, and they've seen games won or lost on somebody getting an automatic base because of an out or, or things like that, which I think is overblowing it. Um, but I, I think they're going to have to find a happy medium. I will say getting the game to two hours for people with no attention span like me, I think is a good thing for baseball. You know, as I know you could sit out there all day and be a happy man. So I, I don't know. We have to find me. a balance. Uh, I, ha- I haven't listened to a word you said because you have no credibility once you said that walk-up music was affected. I don't really care about the walk-up walk music up other music? than the earworm that you've got Who's me with the, the guy from the Rockies who has the walk-up it, music. Charlie Blackman, who I, I raised this to him years ago when I heard it because he plays that outfield song when he walks up and I, it sticks in my head for days afterwards. But hey, kudos to the Phillies for knocking down that that walk up music and and sweeping the Rockies in four and now getting to five hundred. It seems like they're on the right path. Hey, and I have one more thing to add because every time Roman Quinn comes up, we have to listen to people complain about the fact that he's going to get injured. Yeah, he may get injured, but did you see how it changed the game having Roman Quinn in there yesterday? Speed matters. And he. he d- he did something we talked to the map. He did a bunt single, <laughs> was... got on base, got to second, stole third, and scored. It puts pressure on the other team's pitchers. It it makes them have to think. And look, I mean, the Phillies pitchers came. As opposed to Schwarber leading off? By, by the way, um, we talked about how the Phillies would have bad defense this season. Colorado Rockies uh, for bad defense. My goodness, Jeff. <laughs> as we talked about fundamentals with the manager uh yeah they don't have any but the four pitchers in pitched into the sixth inning and all four wins against them for the phillies they had a 2.72 era in just under 24 innings you get that you're doing just fine uh the bats coming around a little bit your concern level on bryce harper's elbow i'm not a doctor i don't know i'm just happy that they have the designated hitter right now because if they didn't bryce harper wouldn't be playing if you remember he had when he had the throwing problem was it last year 
he couldn't throw the ball into the infield. So if this gives him the opportunity and the Phillies the opportunity to have his bat in the lineup, isn't that the benefit of the whole designated hitter thing? Yeah. I mean, look, I never thought I'd hear you defending the designated hitter, but go for it. I'm I'm with you. <laughs> I still prefer – look, I still prefer – I know the, you do. You the prefer the pitcher. The cerebral part of yes. the game that, that is substitutions and pitchers and things like that, but there are benefits to it, and I can't deny that there are benefits, and this is one of them. Uh, the Phillies start a series against the Mets tonight. Mets have the best record in baseball at 14-6. and six. Aaron Nola on the mound with uh, Kyle Gibson and then Zach Eflin the following night. Uh, let's hope Angel Hernandez is not behind the plate as much as we love our umpires. Uh, your thoughts on the Phillies look playing the Mets? You, look at you taking a shot. Look, I don't understand. Joe West came out and said he got a 96% rating for that game. I understand. Joe West? <laughs> that that Angel Hernandez, according to baseball, you, you realize, I know, you but are, if, you are citing the wrong thing. But he's apparently argument. the person who is speaking Hold for on. If the. If you're going to make an argument, the last person who has credibility in, in Philadelphia is Joe West. He was apparently speaking for the ums or whoever was reviewing it for baseball. Care. Joe West shouldn't be speaking. Well, for I I understand, but if somebody in if baseball thinks. That Angel Hernandez was ninety six percent accurate. I've got questions with how they the review you things. Sent you sent me a chart that did not show anything near ninety percent. He was not ninety six percent accurate. Just watching the game, you could see that there were eight or nine pitches at the end of at bats. There wasn't one person who disagreed with Kyle Schwarber on either team. Every place that he missed. Yes, on either team, pointing out the high, the low, the everything. But look, I mean. There's a better feeling in the city today after the draft and after the Sixers and after the Phillies get back to 10 and 10 winning four than there was last week at this time with where things were. Your thoughts as we wrap things up today? It's a good time to be in Philadelphia. And most importantly, the flyer season comes to an end. Oh, mercifully. It can't get yeah. worse next season, right? Jeff? Everything is going right. Everything, <laughs> everything is sunny in Philadelphia, right, Jeff? Let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining this week. Make sure to join us next week to start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.